is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Kieran Satia, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's here to talk with us about moral disagreement. Kieran Satia, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So moral realism is a view in philosophy about whether moral claims are objectively true or false. What's your stance on that question? Are claims like killing people is wrong, objectively true or false, or is it all kind of subjective? For the sake of the discussion today, I'm going to be assuming that moral claims can be true and false, that some of them are true, that they're objects of belief. I believe that courage is a virtue, that people shouldn't be selfish, and that we aspire to knowledge in those beliefs. So I not only believe that we shouldn't be completely selfish, I think I know that we shouldn't be selfish. And in particular, I'm going to be assuming that moral disagreement is possible not only between individuals but across cultures. So there's a kind of cultural relativist or social relativist view that would say when different cultures or different societies say justice is a virtue or justice isn't a virtue, they're really talking about different things. They're talking past each other. And I'm going to assume that that's not true. I think that's not true, and that there really is moral disagreement there. And the question I'm interested in is, what the implications are of the possibility, the actuality of moral disagreements of that kind. So you mentioned moral disagreement, and it's precisely the seeming existence of moral disagreement that has led some people to call the possibility of moral realism into question. People see disagreements across cultures, across time, within our own cultures, of course, and they think if there was such a thing as real objective moral facts, people would converge on it in the same way they seem to do perhaps in science. But the persistence of moral disagreement leads some to think that it itself suggests the non-existence of moral facts. Is this a problem, and what's the right way to respond to this? I think there are several problems there, actually, and, and they need to be dealt with in different ways. So one kind of problem suggested by those remarks is that if there really are moral facts, you would expect people to agree about them. And then, since there's so much disagreement, there's an inference that maybe there aren't such facts. I'm actually pretty skeptical about that line of attack on moral realism, because it's very unclear to me why you would assume that the existence of moral facts would generate a prediction of convergence. There are particular views that some philosophers have had about moral facts on which their existence is bound up with rational agreement, rational convergence, they may be problematic in light of disagreement. But in general, I don't see a direct inference from the truth of moral claims of being able to know them to predictions of convergence. The problem I do worry about more is a problem about the justification of moral beliefs in the face of disagreement. So moral skepticism might mean not denial of the existence of moral facts, but doubt about whether we're in a position to know them, skepticism about what moral claims are true, which moral claims are false. 
And there's an argument that in the face of widespread persistent disagreement, given how we in general rationally should respond to disagreement with people, we ought to be very doubtful that we have the moral truth, that we've got the correct beliefs. And that is a problem that I've been worrying about and trying to respond to, partly in light of recent work by theorists of knowledge in general about disagreement and the right way to respond to it. So there seems to be this idea that just because there's a lot of disagreement about something, that doesn't mean it's impossible for either that thing to be true or for us to be able to know that it's true. There can be widespread disagreement about something without having those consequences. Take an example from science. For hundreds of years, there was disagreement about whether the Earth was round or flat, and eventually that disagreement was resolved. That doesn't mean either that there was no fact of the matter about whether the Earth was round or flat, or that it was impossible for us ever to find out whether the Earth was round or flat. So would you make a parallel argument about claims about what's right and wrong? Partly. I mean, the kind of disagreement that's, I'm not sure whether it's distinctive of morality, but it's especially troubling and seems to be present in the moral case, or is arguably present in the moral case, is a kind where the disagreement doesn't seem to be traceable to disagreement about relevant non-moral facts. It seems possible and arguably actual for people to continue to disagree about morality in a way that isn't dependent on not having gathered the right information about what's actually happening. They can agree about the non-moral facts, the non-ethical facts about the situation and still disagree. And that is potentially troubling. There's a very difficult anthropological question about how extensive disagreement actually is and how far it can be traced to disagreement in non-moral beliefs. But I think we can sort of sidestep that to some extent by making two moves. One is to shift from disagreements specifically about morality, moral right and wrong, to disagreements about ethics and how to live in general. There may be limits to how crazy your views can be or appear to be about right and wrong and still really have moral concepts. The range of views it's possible to have about how to live, how to act, how there's reason to live, how one should lead one's life seems much greater. And it seems like there are cases of philosophers who have held such diametrically opposed views about that kind of question that we have instances of disagreement about how to live that are not based on ignorance about the non-ethical facts. So there are philosophers who hold a self-interest theory according to which what any one of us should do is what's in their own best interests. And then there are philosophers who've held about the very same subject matter, how you should live, resolutely altruistic theories on which what you ought to do is what would best serve the interests of absolutely everyone concerned, treating yourself impartially, giving no more weight to your own interests than other people. And it looks like that's a case where the disagreement is sufficiently fundamental that agreeing about the non-moral facts, the non-ethical facts about a circumstance, whether something would be in your interest, whether it would benefit other people, whether it would harm them, whether it would benefit you, that's not going to affect or resolve the disagreement between the egoist and the altruist about how one should act in certain cases. And that's the kind of disagreement that, whether or not it's distinctive of ethics, maybe it's present in other cases too, at least has been distinctively troubling. Uh, And that's the kind of disagreement that I've been puzzling over. Does that kind of disagreement create an epistemological problem, a problem about the justification of moral beliefs? If we were confronted with people whose moral views were that drastically opposed to our own, if the egoist met the altruist, if the altruist met the egoist, and they tried to resolve the disagreement by 
checking off the non-moral fats and couldn't, what should they then think? Should they continue to stick to their guns or should they then lose confidence in their previous moral, ethical opinions? One way of thinking about this is some moral realists have argued that when there's disagreement, there essentially must be disagreement about the facts, the non-moral facts, or there must be disagreement about how the competing agents are reasoning. But you're pointing out that there may be a case where two people continue to have moral disagreement, even though they have the same access to all the non-moral facts, they are equally capable reasoners. And this is sometimes referred to as a case where there are epistemic peers. So how should one, or shouldn't one, revise one's beliefs in the light of contrary opinions in this situation in the, in, when confronted with an epistemic peer? So that's right. I'm thinking that there are cases of very fundamental ethical moral disagreement in which they cannot be traced to non-moral, non-ethical disagreement. And both sides are reasoning equally well, at least so far as we apply only non-moral standards to their reasoning. That they seem equally intelligent, their views are equally coherent, equally well worked out, they've reflected equally hard. That's true of philosophers whose views are very strongly opposed. So my view is that in this kind of disagreement, if your views are true and you're confronted with someone whose views are false, you should stick to your guns. And the question is, how is that possible? What kind of view about the justification of moral beliefs can make sense of that? So I'm thinking... If I were to meet someone who thought that there was no reason to care about anyone but himself, and I tried to argue it out with him and couldn't get anywhere, I would not lose confidence and should not lose confidence in the existence of reasons to care about other people. The obstacles to that come from claims about the justification of belief in the face of disagreement that have been made by philosophers talking about disagreement in general, and also by views that moral philosophers have had about the nature of justification in ethics in particular, the nature of the justification of moral beliefs. So maybe I'll say a bit about those two in turn. So in general discussions of disagreement, a view that's been recently popular, at least a popular object of, of investigation, gets called the equal weight view. And the idea of the equal weight view is, as the name suggests, that you should really give equal weight to other people's opinions as your own, at least when you have no prior reason to think you're more likely to get it right. Prior meaning prior to your thinking about the very issue on which you end up disagreeing. So the thought is, if before we compare notes, I think, oh yeah, you'd probably get it right at least as often as I would, and then we turn out to disagree, the equal weight view says, well, in light of that disagreement, I should not be confident that I got it right. So in application to morality, the thought would be, well... If we disagree about how to live, and the disagreement is as fundamental as the disagreement between the egoist and the altruist, and we ask the question, well, setting aside the point on which you disagree, this very fundamental issue about egoism and altruism, do you have, apart from that, any prior reason to think the other guy would get it right and you would get it wrong? The worry, anyway, is that the answer is no. Setting aside my views about how to live, I don't have any reason to think that the guy I meet, who turns out to be an egoist, totally selfish, would be less likely than I am to get it right. So then we meet, 
We compare notes. I realize he's an unshakable egoist. I, I'm not a complete altruist, not even close, but at least I think there is some reason to care about other people. If I then apply the equal weight view, the suggestion is, well, I didn't have any prior reason to think that I would be more likely to get it right, so I should not think that I got it right. I should lose confidence. So what, it, what threatens to appear here is an argument for a skeptical conclusion, a conclusion that I'm not justified in maintaining my beliefs, at least in the face of that kind of disagreement. Again, you might think, well, this disagreement doesn't actually occur, but I think even if it did, even if I were confronted with this kind of disagreement, I shouldn't be dissuaded from my views by the persistence and coherence of the egoist's position. So how to respond to this kind of worry? I think ultimately this is not so troubling an argument because the equal weight view is not a defensible view about how to respond to disagreement. It's subject to problems that you can see outside of the moral case. It's just not a, a plausible view anyway. So the main objection to the equal weight view that I find persuasive has been made by Tom Kelly. And the point is just this. The equal weight view has you reason as if the only thing you had to go on was your prior estimate of how likely you or the other guy would be to get it right, as if no new evidence has come to light. But in a case of actual disagreement, as well as your prior estimate, you have all the evidence on which you're now basing your belief. So take an example of this that's not drawn from morality. You and I have been pretty good weather forecasters in the past. I have no prior basis for thinking that I'm more reliable than you are, no more evidence that I'm reliable, we seem on a par. We then look at the same evidence about whether it's going to rain tomorrow, and I'm convinced that it is. The evidence seems pretty clear to me, and I look through it, and I think it through very carefully, and yes, it's going to rain tomorrow. And then I come out and talk to you, and you say, no, I don't think so. On the equal weight view, I should now lose confidence completely. And while I agree that I should lose confidence a bit, your disagreement is some kind of counter-evidence to my claim that it's going to rain. I don't think I should be, lose confidence completely because, after all, as well as my prior estimate of whether we'd get it right, whether I would, whether you would, I also have all this meteorological evidence that suggests, yes, it's going to rain. And it's a mistake to think that the facts about our opinions render that evidence null and void or give it no weight to continue to support my conviction. If the evidence, in fact, supports my view that it's going to rain, then you should never have thought that it wasn't going to rain, and you should not think that now. By contrast, if the evidence really supports my view, then while I've got a little bit of evidence that it's not going to rain, another reliable person says no, I still have all this weight of evidence indicating rain, and I should take that evidence into account and give it more weight than your opinion. What that suggests is that the equal weight view is if not discarding relevant evidence, treating it as having less weight than it really has. And the correct view would be one in which the evidence for one's conviction has to be weighed against the fact that someone said otherwise. That's a little bit of evidence that you're wrong, but not that much evidence. And so you should, in cases like the one I've just described, stick to your guns. Now, how exactly that maps onto the moral case will depend on what the evidence is for moral claims, how they're justified. But even before we get into that issue, I think we can say that the, the argument for moral skepticism that says, look, the equal weight view is generally true. You shouldn't give any more credence to your own view than to someone else's if prior to the actual disagreement you have no 
basis for thinking you'd be more likely to get it right. The argument that relies on that premise is not a good argument because the premise just isn't true. It's just a bad view about the rational response to disagreement. As I said, how this bears on the moral case is going to depend on what the evidence for moral claims is. And there, I think, we run into a problem. There are fairly influential views about the nature of the justification of moral belief and the evidence for ethical claims that look like they're going to revive the kind of problem that the equal weight view generated. So it looks like there might be a skeptical problem after all. Here's the kind of thing I have in mind. Lots of philosophers talk as if the basic evidence for ethical claims or moral claims comes from our intuitions. We start out with a bunch of moral intuitions, and what we ought to believe is somehow a function of them. We should systematize them, make them more coherent, bring them into what philosophers sometimes call reflective equilibrium, and when we do that, we have justified beliefs. Intuitions here are treated in different ways by different philosophers. Sometimes moral intuitions are just taken to be your initial beliefs or a subset of your initial beliefs, your considered judgments, the ones that are particularly clear cases for you. Sometimes they're taken to be appearances, intellectual seemings. It just seems to you that a certain action is wrong, that a certain trait is a virtue, that there's reason to behave in a certain way or not to behave in a certain way. Those kinds of views are pretty widespread among moral philosophers. I think that they generate a problem of disagreement that's independent of the equal weight view. I think they generate a skeptical argument, and for that reason, I think we ought to reject them. So let me say how how the skeptical argument goes, starting with the view on which intuitions are treated as like appearances or seemings. At its simplest the idea would be, well, let's treat them by analogy with perceptual appearances. So we'll give the kind of weight to your moral or ethical intuitions that you would give to how things look or smell or taste and use those as evidence that supports whichever view is the most coherent systematic view that respects those intuitions, discards the ones that can't be made coherent with it, and so on. You get versions of that view in work by Shelley Kagan and Thomas Nagel. Here's the problem. Although the equal weight view is generally false, I think, it does give the right verdict in certain cases. These are among the cases that make it seem tempting. And some of the most vivid cases in which it gets the right verdict are cases of perceptually based disagreement. When disagreement rests on perceptual evidence, the equal weight verdict, namely this conciliatory verdict that you should back off your opinion, actually seems right. So here's an example that people have discussed in the recent literature on this. You and I are watching a horse race. Our sort of prior evidence suggests we're equally, our perceptual faculties are equally reliable. No one of us is more likely to see things accurately than the other. It looks to me like horse A won. So I think that horse did win. Afterwards, I talk to you and you say, it looked to you like horse B won. Here it does seem right that I should no longer be confident of my opinion. After all, I have no basis on which to discount how things look to you. That's not because the equal weight view is true, I think. It's because uh, the right way to treat appearances as evidence is to give equal evidential weight to how things look to other people unless you have some antecedent basis on which to discount those appearances. So in cases like this, you shouldn't stick to your guns. You should lose confidence. Problem, for the guy who thinks of the justification of ethical beliefs 
as basically like that. It rests on ethical intuitions. They provide evidence in just the way perceptual appearances do. The disagreement between the egoist and the altruist, assuming that their intuitions are diametrically opposed, and then they each believe a perfectly coherent view that matches their intuitions. If that is to be treated like a perceptual disagreement, then given how we ought to treat perceptual disagreements, it will turn out, after all, that yes, it is a case where you should lose confidence in your views. So the moral of this, I think, is if you treat the evidence for ethical claims as bottoming out in your intuitions, and you say, intuitions, they provide evidence for ethical claims in just the kind of way perceptual appearances do, there's going to be the same skeptical response to fundamental disagreement that the equal weight view generated. Except now it won't depend on the equal weight view, which is problematic. It will just depend on the idea of intuitions as providing evidence in the way perceptual appearances do. So it seems that at this point, perhaps an asymmetry might arise. In the one case, in the horse race case, you've told us that we have reason to accept something like uh, equal weights view in the perceptual cases, but we don't want to accept the equal weight view in the moral cases. So how can we avoid this asymmetry? What is the right way to think about the moral case that it would avoid this asymmetry? Okay, so I think there are two ways to go at this point, one of which I think is problematic and the other of which is the way I favor. The problematic way would go like this. You can imagine someone who liked this appeal to intuitions saying, your objection is not really fair to me. You've assumed that I'm going to treat intuitions as evidence in the way perceptual appearances do. And then you've applied this analogy incredibly literally and then just said, hey, look, here's what happens in perceptual disagreements. You're going to have to say that about comparable moral disagreements that rest on conflicting intuitions. What if the proponent of this intuition-based view says, no, that's not how I'm going to go. I do think the fundamental evidence for ethical claims comes from your intuitions, but I think it's your intuitions that provide the evidence, and other people's intuitions don't have the same kind of weight. You need to give your intuitions weight in deciding what to believe, but unless you have positive reason to trust someone else's intuitions, it's okay to ignore them. That's a kind of response that also gets associated with pure coherence views, coherence epistemologies that say, look, what you should believe is just the most coherent view that fits together your beliefs systematically. Other people's beliefs, that's their problem. I think that would create an asymmetry. It would create a difference between the horse race case and moral disagreement. It would say, in the horse race case, yeah, the evidence has changed. You've got how things look to the the other person now. That's new evidence. In the moral case, no, it's only how your intuitions are that provide the basic evidence. Other people's intuitions, you only need to take those into account if you have positive reason to trust them. But I don't think this can be the right way out because it generates what I call epistemic egoism. In effect, what you're doing if you treat your intuitions as evidence, but even though you have no prior reason to discount them, don't give weight to other people's intuitions. You're in effect assuming that your faculties your moral intuitive faculties are more reliable than other people's prior to what they actually tell you. It's as if you know in advance, before you even discover, as it were, whether you're an egoist or an altruist, that if your intuitions support egoism, probably egoism is true. And it doesn't matter if other people are altruists. But if your intuitions were to support altruism, 
Well, probably altruism would be true. It doesn't matter if other people are egoists. And I think that can't be right. It can't be that before we even look at any evidence for ethical claims, we're, as it were, entitled to anticipate that whatever our intuitions support is more probably right or more likely to be right than what other people's intuitions support. So that's one way out that would draw a contrast between the cases, but I don't think it can be right. What's the alternative? How, can, how else can you draw a contrast between the cases? My thought is that what you need to say in order to explain the contrast between the horse race case where you should become less confident and the case of fundamental moral disagreement is that the most basic standards of justification for moral beliefs or ethical beliefs in general are, as I put it, biased towards the truth. That at the deepest level, the standards of justification for ethical belief favor true beliefs over false beliefs. So the asymmetry is that if your beliefs are actually true, they have the evidence or justification on their side in a way that false beliefs don't. And that's just a basic fact about how the justification of moral beliefs works. It's not that that means you could provide some non-question-begging argument to persuade the other person. What we started out with was a disagreement between an egoist and an altruist in which that precisely wasn't the case. So it's not that the evidence favoring the altruist, or at least someone who thinks there's some reason to care about others, means that there's anything he can say to the egoist to persuade him. But nevertheless, if in fact his view is true, the only way we can justify his sticking to his guns is by saying that, well, there's a fundamental standard of justification for ethical beliefs on which the true beliefs, or beliefs that are close to the truth, are more strongly justified than false beliefs or beliefs that are further from the truth. And that's the kind of picture of the fundamental justification of ethical beliefs we need to adopt if we're to be able to explain why it is rational to stick to your guns in the face of ethical disagreement, at least if your views are true or close to the truth. On this position, it won't be rational. You won't be justified in sticking to your guns in the face of disagreement if your views are badly false, because then you will never have been justified in holding them to begin with at all. So it seems that you want to try and steer your way between two alternatives. The one position would be to say that the altruist, when hearing the view of the egoist, should call into question his belief. And the other view is to say that the altruist, when hearing the egoist, should doubt the egoist's belief because he should just take his own beliefs for granted. And uh, you want to sort of um, steer between those two alternatives and say, whoever is right in this case, by virtue of the fact that they have the right position, they will sort of automatically have the correct justification for what they believe. And that's what's going to determine which of the two people is correct. That's exactly right. You can think of there being three basic pictures of what should happen if this kind of fundamental disagreement occurred. On one picture, both sides should lose confidence. After all, they don't have any prior reason to think that they're the one who would get it right. That would be by appeal to the equal weight view, you'd get that result, or if you treated their intuitions as just part of a common body of evidence that's now totally equivocal. Another response would be to say they should both stick to their guns. They're entitled to treat their own views as a more reliable guide to the facts. The altruist should stick to his guns, but equally the egoist, even if his views are false, he should continue to be confident of them. That's the view that I, I said leads to or implies a kind of epistemic egoism because it's as if they are assuming, each of them, that 
just because the intuitions are theirs, they're more reliable. They're more accurately tracking the facts. And so what's the way out? It looks to me like the only way out that's going to explain the contrast between the horse race case and moral disagreement in a way that doesn't fall into epistemic egoism is one that says the situation of the egoist and the altruist is asymmetric. I suppose you could in principle say that the one whose views are false should stick to his guns and the other guy should become less confident. But I'm thinking, no, it's the what we need to forge is a kind of connection at the deepest level between justification and truth on which the person whose beliefs are true is entitled to maintain them in the face of disagreement and the person whose beliefs are false is not. In a way, the basic standards of justification for ethical belief are inextricable from the ethical facts. The mistake of the moral theorists who appeal to reflective equilibrium, coherence with intuitions, is to deny that. What they're imagining, and you can see the appeal of this, what they're imagining is that you can articulate the right standards of justification for ethical belief, namely, come up with a coherent view that fits with your or everyone's intuitions. You can articulate those standards without taking a stand on the actual questions of ethics. So there's one question, how do you justify your beliefs? You don't need to first answer the questions of ethics before you can say how to form justified beliefs about ethics. You can see the appeal of that idea But on the view I'm proposing, I mean, defending is the only way to resist skepticism in the face of fundamental disagreement. You can't say that. You can't articulate the standards for forming a justified belief about ethics or about morality in a way that is independent of what the actual ethical facts are, what the moral facts are. There's no way to separate off those two issues. And that connects up with something that got me interested in this topic to begin with, which was pedagogy, teaching intro ethics to students, there's a a wonderful paper by Annette Beyer in which she worries about the effects of teaching moral philosophy to students in a way that presents them with a whole array of different theories, and each of which looks pretty coherent. Some philosopher can defend it pretty well. And she worries that the effect is to generate skeptics. Students will just doubt that they should believe any of these theories. How can they decide between them? And I think If what students are being taught is the epistemology of reflective equilibrium, the idea that the way to justify beliefs is the justify beliefs are the ones that coherently fit together with their or everyone's intuitions, there is going to be a problem here, namely that faced with disagreement of a kind that they're being vividly presented with in intro ethics, the epistemological theories that they're being often tacitly induced to accept suggests that either you can't stick to your guns in the face of that kind of disagreement, you should lose confidence, or that the only way to do it is by, as it were, arbitrarily treating your own intuitions as more reliable. The unjustifiability, which is especially vivid if you're an undergraduate thinking, I'm going to stick to my intuitions against those of Professor X at Harvard, that's very hard to do. So I think they are imbibing epistemological principles that make it hard to maintain your views in the face of disagreement, and then they're being told, look at all this disagreement. The problem is, on a view like mine, on which the standards of justification for ethical belief, what it is to think well about ethics, are not extricable from the ethical facts, you face a dilemma as a teacher. On the one hand, you want to teach your students to think well about ethics. On the other hand, you don't want to just indoctrinate them in your particular ethical views. 
Now, on the reflective equilibrium approach, you can do that. You teach them how to achieve reflective equilibrium, come up with a coherent view, and you can do that without taking a stand on what the actual moral truth is. So you can teach your students to think well without risking indoctrinating them in a way that seems problematic. On my view, you can't separate those two things. If I'm right, there's no way to teach your students to even think well about ethics that doesn't involve taking a stand on substantive ethical questions. And as a result, I'm left really not knowing how to teach intro ethics uh, anymore. So returning for a moment to the dispute between the altruist and the egoist, let's imagine that, again, they're epistemic peers, and they appeal to you to referee their dispute. And you offer them the principle, the one of you whose moral beliefs are true should stick to his guns, the other one should abandon his beliefs. And they could both accept this. But the problem seemed to emerge in the first place to a response that, first personally, they both felt that they were responding to the truth. So what practically can we say in this context? Is it just that there is an independent fact of the matter as to which one of them is right, but it's one that they can't know first personally that they're onto? That's a very good question. It's certainly true that the proposal I'm making is not going to be useful in resolving the dispute. It's not going to provide a recipe for determining which of the egoist or altruist is right, and therefore which one is justified. So that can't really be its purpose. The second thing to say is, given that their best guide, on my view, if they accepted my view, their best guide to whether their beliefs are justified is going to be dependent on whether they think their beliefs are true, which they do, it's going to seem rational to each of them to stick to their guns. The egoist is going to be as misguided about the justification of moral beliefs as he is in his moral beliefs. Uh, I think that's just the way it is. The only thing I would resist is the suggestion that you made at one point in setting out this problem that that means that we can't know first personally whether our beliefs are justified or not, whether we're in the right. Because I'm thinking, no, well, the altruist not only has justified beliefs, but by the same token is going to be justified in thinking that his beliefs are justified, and he may even know that. So the asymmetry between them is going to, as it were, ramify up into an asymmetry in whether they're, not only whether they're justified in their moral beliefs, but whether they're justified in their beliefs about the justification of their moral beliefs. That's not going to help if you want a method for resolving the dispute, but I think it is going to mean that my view doesn't have the implication that the altruist is justified, but he doesn't know it. He's justified in his beliefs, and he knows it. It's just he doesn't have a non-question-begging way to prove to anyone that he's justified in his beliefs or that he knows it. Kieran Satia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. <laughs>